Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, Life's Ultimate Purpose. Life's Ultimate Purpose, Philippians chapter 1. Picking up in verse 12, we'll focus in on one verse this morning, verse 21. But in verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that, it, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Father, we're so grateful for these powerful words in the New Testament that explain to us as clearly as any other the ultimate purpose and joy of life. Lord, we thank you for the convictions of the Apostle Paul that we read about here and we pray that these would be our convictions as well. Lord, as one year comes to an end and we stand at the brink of a new year, I pray that we would examine our lives, our faith in Christ, our Christian commitment, our involved in your, involvement in your kingdom's purposes. And Lord, if our convictions are any different from those that we see stated herein, we pray that even this morning you would begin doing a work in us, changing us, convicting us. Lord, give us lives this new year that will truly impact others for Christ, regardless of what our circumstances in life may be. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we stand here at the end of one year and the beginning of another. And folks, as we do so, it's very normal and natural to think of all of the highs and the lows of last year. And as we think about the highs and the lows of last year, 
Normally and naturally our minds turn to the coming year. None of us knows what this coming year is going to hold for us. What circumstances are we going to have to go through? What experiences? Who are we going to rub shoulders with that we might have the opportunity to to introduce them to faith in Christ? It's a year of opportunity and a year of challenges. And as we think about a year of opportunity and challenges, I want you to understand also that living in a fallen world, each and every one of us will probably at certain times throughout the year be faced also with disappointments. Disappointments are a part of life. It's a natural part of life. And Christians have to go through disappointments just like everybody else. And so in this fallen world, we're going to have mountaintops and valleys. And how do we handle those experiences of life? Well, in the passage we look at today, we actually get a glimpse into the heart of the Apostle Paul as he is speaking of what could have been a disappointment in his life. So let's start there this morning. Thinking about disappointments and those questions, what if, that we ask. You know what I think of? What I think of in my own family's experience 16 years ago, We were on family vacation, and we learned, unfortunately, uh, at that time that Connie's brother, Tommy, had been diagnosed with leukemia. And as we learned of that diagnosis, he was telling us about his oncologist wanting him to get started on chemotherapy, and yet telling him that that chemotherapy was not going to bring about healing in his body. It would only hold the cancer at bay. And so he decided initially he was going to take a bit of an unconventional approach. He revamped his whole diet. He was eating only fresh fruits and vegetables. That's all. Uh, Uncooked foods at that and doing a lot of juicing. And, And his oncologist couldn't understand what was going on because every time he went to the doctor's office, the doctor kind of scratched his head said, Tommy, I don't know what you're doing, but it's working. You are the most well sick person that I have ever seen. Uh, his, count, his blood counts were excellent. He said, as long as whatever you're doing is working, we don't need to start the chemo. Uh, his blood pressure went down the best it was in his life. His pulse rate, he said, I feel great. He, he would go through his, uh, his, the, the holidays in his workplace and Uh, Even during flu season, he'd be the only one that wouldn't come down with even so much as sniffles. He said, I I feel great. But of course, that moment in time came that he did need to go on the chemo. And Connie and I could see as the months and years progressed how he seemed to be going a little bit down with every minute of passing time. And then uh, as we were closing out uh, 2009, beginning 2010, it was obvious that year at Christmas, he was a very sick individual at our house. And, and we know what happened there. He, he ended up passing away on January 10th of 2010. But uh, his doctor wanted to get him started on this type of chemo 
uh, for his leukemia that's since been touted as a miracle drug for leukemia. Medicare wouldn't approve it yet. And so he had to put him on a, another kind. And uh, this particular miracle drug finally uh, got approved about 60 to 90 days after Tommy passed. And you think of things like that. You know, fighting that disease for 13 years and 60 days away from this miracle drug. And your mind is filled with questions like, what if? What if he would have gone on the chemo earlier in his journey? What if this drug would have come available earlier? What if? What if? And your mind is filled with all kinds of what ifs. And as we go through disappointments in life, that's natural. We look back in hindsight and we ask, what if? And we come to Philippians chapter 1 and we see that if anybody would have had a cause to ask questions like that, it would have surely been the Apostle Paul. He's in prison under house arrest. And he's guilty for doing nothing other than preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he hasn't broken the law in terms of being a murderer. At least as a Christian, he didn't commit crimes like that. He, he wasn't a thief. He hadn't embezzled funds. He hadn't committed fraud. He hadn't done anything like that that normally we would think of in, uh, uh, ending somebody up in prison. All he had done was preach the gospel. And for that, he was in jail. And he could have asked the questions, what if? He could have looked at his life's experiences and been disappointed and given up and thought, well, my life and my witness is over now, but he didn't do that. In fact, as we read this passage this morning, we see just the opposite atmosphere in, in Paul's thoughts. We see his convictions, his convictions as he looks at this valley and he sees the opportunity that God has given to him through this and he rejoices. And as we see his convictions, it helps us with our convictions. As we read about his life and learn how he handled disappointments, it's instructive for us. And what we learn here is that when Jesus Christ enters into a man's life, everything about his attitude, everything about his perspective ought to change. I want you to see first of all with me this morning, a believer's estimation of life. A believer's estimation of life. A believer's appraisal of life. Look at the first part of verse 20. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Now folks, it dawned on me that to really understand the context of what's going on here in the book of Philippians, you need to turn all the way back to Acts chapter 9. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. And most of you know what happened in Acts chapter 9. We see the conversion of the Apostle Paul. In chapter 9, 
Luke begins there in verse 1, he says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now we know as the story continues what happens, God says to Ananias, Ananias, I want you to go and and pray for this man. And, And you'll notice there in verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. And kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And taken food, he was strengthened. Well, folks, we know what happened after that. I mean, Paul was a brand new man in Christ. And so we get over to chapter 13 of the book of Acts. And we see that the church is meeting there in a prayer meeting. And the Holy Spirit says to the church body there, he says, Separate for me Saul and Barnabas uh, for the work to which I've called them. And God sent Paul out. He Gave him a new name, Paul, and he sent him out on a missionary journey. And Paul made, in fact, three missionary journeys. And he became probably the the best missionary that we've ever had in the history of the church. And as he's going about on these missionary journeys, you and I need to keep in mind the culture of that day. In most of the places where Paul went preaching the good news about Jesus, Christianity was an illegal religion. You see, the Romans worshipped Caesar. The Greeks had a pantheon of gods. And Rome had also grandfathered in the Jewish faith. But Christianity was still viewed as an illegal religion. In fact, it wasn't until Constantine the Great issued the Edict of Milan in 313 AD that Christianity became a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And so what did that mean? It meant during the lifetime of the Apostle Paul as he went about the Roman Empire preaching about Jesus, the authorities saw him as doing something that was against the law. It was illegal. And yet Paul is faithful in doing that. 
And as he's doing that, he's running into problems with authorities everywhere. And so when we come to Philippians chapter 1, we see that Paul has been arrested. He's under house arrest. Remember, he had appealed his case to Caesar, being a Roman citizen. They sent him to to Rome. And so he's made that long voyage through the book of Acts. He's arrived in Rome. And the book of Acts closes in chapter 28 by saying that he's under house arrest. And as he's under house arrest, he's chained to members of the imperial guard. It was an elite Roman uh, force of of soldiers. They were sort of like the the, the rangers or the green beret. They were were some of the tops of the tops, some of the most important men in, in Rome's military. That's the gentleman that Paul was chained to night and day. Well, he's finally arrived in Rome. Now, it's not the way he had expected. You see, he had always wanted to take the gospel to Rome. In Romans chapter 1, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he went on to tell them there in chapter 1, I'm ready to preach the gospel. I'm a debtor to God and to others to preach the gospel. For, For in the gospel, we see the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greeks. And so he was eager to be there. He wanted to go to the most powerful city in the world at that time. And from there what he wanted to do was establish a base of operations and he could continue from Rome to take the gospel westward into Spain. And so again he's there just not the way he had planned. He's awaiting trial. And his gut feeling is that that he thinks everything's going to turn out all right this time. And indeed, it did turn out okay. Under this first imprisonment, Paul was released. And then sometime later, he was arrested again. Now that time, he was thrown in a cold, dark dungeon in Rome. And he did not make it out alive from that. You can read the book of 2 Timothy and you can see in in the mood of 2 Timothy that Paul is not expecting to live. However, again, in Philippians he is. Totally different moods between the two books. Finally, Nero, that madman, he had uh, Paul, tradition uh, says he had Paul beheaded. Uh, Nero was a, a crazy man. He raped his own mother and then he killed her. He persecuted Christians. He would throw them to the lions. He would dip them in a tar-like um, uh, material. And he would tie them up on post. And he would light them on fire to light his beautiful gardens at night. 
That's the kind of madman Nero was. And again, Paul eventually died at the hands of Nero. But as we come to the book of Philippians, we know that he's expecting this release. But nonetheless, here the Philippians are. They have found the apostle Paul again. They've sent Epaphroditus to minister to him. They're all concerned about Paul. Epaphroditus gets sick while he's there with Paul. Paul has to end up nursing him and sends Epaphroditus back to the Philippians with the letter to the Philippians. And in this letter he's saying to the Philippians listen I don't want you to be worried about me anymore you are looking at what has happened to me you're looking at it one way I'm looking at it a totally different way You're looking at it as though it's tragedy, as though it's a bad thing that I'm under arrest here in Rome. But the way I'm looking at it is that my circumstances have fallen out for the good of the gospel. Because you see being chained to the praetorian guard or the imperial forces they were known, he got to speak to some of the most powerful men of the most powerful city at that time. I mean, just imagine these guards being chained to the Apostle Paul. You talk about a captive audience. He had a captive audience. And they no doubt heard him dictating all his letters to the churches. They heard him praying. Uh, he could receive visitors. So he, they heard him talking to his visitors. And, and, and without a doubt, Paul constantly witnessed to this imperial guard. And so when each one of them would get off duty, they went out into the streets of the city and they had been saturated with the good news of Jesus Christ. They knew exactly why Paul was in chains. It was not for being a criminal at all, but it was because of his beliefs. So Paul looked at his circumstances as being wonderful. Yes, I'm in chains. Yes, I'm here not as I would have expected. But look at how God is using this event in my life. I had one set of plans. God had another set of plans. But the ultimate goal has been achieved. God has me here in Rome. And I am preaching the gospel. And I'm even being able to infiltrate some of the the power players of the day. And what Paul wants the Philippian church to know is that nothing about his life and ministry has changed. He's still about Jesus. He says, for me to live is Christ. And he wants them to know my circumstances have not changed that. I'm still the same man that you met at first. I'm still the same man that came to you and and planted a church there in Philippi and preached the gospel to you. And I saw God bring about fruit there in Philippi. I'm still the same person. My circumstances have not changed anything about my nature or my character or what I'm about in life. For me to live is Christ. Now folks, that's the touch point for us today. Life is filled with disappointments and circumstances that we would never choose. But we've got to keep on living for the Lord even when we don't understand and we don't see the outcome of things. That's the lesson for us today. We can't always control circumstances around us, but we can control our response.
Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Christ is my life. Paul's purpose was not to impress men. If your purpose is to impress men, the worst thing that you can have happen is to experience an occasional failure. His purpose was not to be popular. If if your purpose is to be popular, then you're devastated when everybody doesn't like you. His purpose was not to always have his needs met and to be comfortable. If your purpose in life is to always be comfortable, then trials and testing are anathema to you. Paul's purpose wasn't even to live a long life. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. He wanted his life to exalt Christ in whatever circumstances he was in. In fact, look back at verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Look at that word honored there. Your translation may say exalted. The thought is that Paul wanted his life to be a lens that would bring the Lord Jesus Christ into focus in people's minds. Getting ready for this trip, I've gone out and bought a new camera. And I'm fascinated by the lens on it. But you know, when you're looking through a photo album and you're looking at pictures, you don't say, oh man, look at that picture. Boy, I'd love to see the lens that took that picture. I guess unless you're a camera geek. You're interested in the photograph itself. You're fascinated by maybe the detail, the coloring, the clarity and all of that. And Paul is saying that's what I want my life to do. I want my life to be like a camera that would bring Jesus Christ into focus. That would honor him, that would exalt him in every way. Whatever happens to me, I want my life to point other people to Christ. It's like John the Baptist said for me. He said, I must decrease, but he must increase. That's what Paul wanted for his life. And he saw that happening even through unfortunate circumstances. And so he didn't get mired down in bad circumstances and get all depressed and discouraged. He saw God at work and so he rejoiced even though he might have been less than the most comfortable. For me to live is Christ. Folks, not everybody can say that. But you know, all of us are living for something. What are you living for today? Some people live to work, or they live to make money, or they live to make a name for themselves. Their life is nearsighted. It's always about something here and now. Or maybe their life is all about their kids or grandkids. And yes, we have that responsibility to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord and prepare them for life. But some adults are running around, they're trying to still live their life or their dreams through their kids. Life can't be about that, but some are living for that. Others build a dream house, or they collect expensive toys, or they simply entertain themselves to death. Boy, that's the big thing today, isn't it? Just think about all the money that we spend on entertainment today. 
going to this musical event or this sporting event or going here, going there, doing this, doing that, all of the millions and billions even of dollars we spend in our culture today just simply entertaining ourselves to death. And so whatever it is, we're all going to live for something. For Paul, Paul said, for me to live is Christ. You see, folks, God had got a hold of him and changed him and converted him. When God moves into a man's heart, he's a new creation in Christ. We've seen that in our study in in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things that passed away, behold, all things have become new. When the Holy Spirit comes into a man's life and regenerates him and takes him from a position of, of spiritual death to now spiritual life, his desires are supposed to change. His ambitions are supposed to change. Conversion ought to do that to a person. If conversion hasn't changed you one iota, then you maybe need to ask yourself, have I really been converted? Have I really been born again? Because a spiritual birth is a new birth. It's something dramatic that takes place in a person's life. The circumstances of it may not have been that dramatic. You might have been quietly converted. But over the years, it's made a dramatic change in your life. That's what the gospel is supposed to do in a person's life. They become a new creation in Christ so they can likewise say, for me to live is Christ. I want to ask you this morning, has that happened in your life? Now I want to assume on the part of some here, maybe it hasn't happened. And I'd like you to know going into the new year, How you can have that experience. What the Bible has to say about it. I want you to turn with me a moment back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and following just has so much to tell us about the new birth. In Romans chapter 3, Paul asked a question there in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now what do a lot of people run around trying to say today? Hey, I'm a good person. I'm going to make it to heaven. I'm going to get to to know God and be reconciled to God through good works. No, you won't. The Bible says there's none good. Not as God measures things. You read on in in Romans 3.20. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The Bible says if righteousness could have come through a law, then God would have given a law. But it can't happen that way. It can't happen through good works. Look at verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
That is you, dear sir, and that is me. Every one of us, we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And look over at Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Uh, Paul says there, for the wages of sin is death. So all of us have sinned. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says the paycheck for that kind of life is death. Spiritual death and physical death. In other words, what's the Bible saying? In our natural condition, we're in trouble. We are in deep, deep trouble. But then you back up. To Romans chapter 5 and look at what Paul says there in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't wait till we tried to be good enough. Paul goes on in Romans 5 to say while we were still enemies, while we were estranged from God. While we had that clenched fist in the face of God. In that condition God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. John 3.16 says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. The love of God reached down to you and me when you, when you and I could do nothing about our condition. God intervened on our behalf and he sent his son to die there on the cross for your sin and my sin. Taking the wrath of God against sin. Taking upon him the death and the punishment that you and I deserve. That we might get the life and the forgiveness that he's able to give. Folks, that's what God has done for us. That is the gospel. Have you had that experience? Have you had that new birth experience? As as Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? You see, when you're born again, that's where this journey of faith starts. And in this journey of faith where it starts, you can have that conviction of the Apostle Paul that says, for me to live is Christ. Christ is able to change your heart. He's able to make you new from the inside out. Religion can't do that. Religion tries to change people from the outside in and it doesn't work. But God changes people from the inside out. To where we're able to live with a new passion, a new purpose. Where we likewise can say, for me to live is Christ. Whatever my circumstances in life are, whatever my disappointments are in life, I can now look at those and say, okay, what is God up to in this? It may not be what I would have chosen, but it's what God has me doing right now. It's where God has me. What does God want to do through this in my life right now? That's what matters or should matter to the Christian. That's a whole new estimation of life. 
Because again, what's the man of the world do? The man of the world is simply laying up all of his treasures on earth. And Jesus said, don't do that because if you lay up all of your treasures on earth, guess what? Ultimately, you're going to be the big loser one day. Jesus said, what is it going to profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his very own soul? You need a life change if you're not in Christ. And with that life change, you too, like Paul, can have a new estimation of life. To say, for me to live now is Christ. He's who I want my life to be about. And that's what Paul is saying to the Philippians. Don't feel sorry for me. Rejoice with me because of what God is doing in and through my life. Now secondly, I want you to see, as he moves on, talking to them here in verse uh, 21... Notice what he covers next. A believer's evaluation of eternity. He says to die is gain. To die is gain. Now folks, I want you to think with me about that statement for a minute. And how profound that statement is. There's a reality that every one of us will face. And that's death. It is appointed on a man once to die, the Bible says. We can't avoid that. One thing for certain that's going to happen in 2014, I know this because it happened in 2013, 2012, 2011, 2010. One thing that's going to happen here, it's a given, is we're going to have some funerals. We see it over and over again. Here's a, here's a casket. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just trying to be realistic. About something every one of us will eventually face. And how we can look at that moment differently. We can look at it from a believer's perspective. But one of these days, you know, next year there'll be somebody laid out here. There'll there'll be a funeral going on. And you don't have to be old for that to happen. Three weeks ago yesterday, Connie and I went to the funeral of one of my very best friends growing up that I went through high school with, Al. Al Broom, he was very athletic, played uh, football for our high school. He was a big basketball player. He and his brother both were, were great athletes. Al went out on to NC State, got his engineering degree, came back to Charlotte, worked for an engineering firm. Here recently, he and some friends of his engineering buddies got together and they put all on the line, they put all their life savings and, and assets on the line to buy an engineer firm, to start a new engineer uh, firm over in Charlotte. And that's, that's what they've been about, trying to build that business. And two years ago this past Thanksgiving, Al was out, big family gathering. They're out in the yard playing football. Al falls, cracks a rib. After five weeks, it hadn't healed. He thought he'd better go to the doctor and get an x-ray, see why it wasn't healing. One thing led to another. Next thing you knew, uh, he'd been diagnosed with multiple myeloma and stage four at that. In stage four multiple myeloma, the average lifespan is just 29 months, that's all. He made it 24 months. Leaves behind a wife of 28 years and a 14-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter. You don't have to be old to die. But I want you to notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying a staggering thing here. For, For me to live is Christ, but he says to die is gain. 
Now folks, hear me clearly. That is a statement that you cannot understand apart from the gospel. Apart from the gospel, you can't even wrap your mind around that phrase, to die is gain. The man of the world says, no, death is the end. It's all washed up. It's all over then. At best, there's a big question mark, what next? But for the believer, you can say to die is gain. And I want you to understand who is writing this. Paul, in in writing this, he's not just simply speaking philosophically about, yeah, you know, one of these days way out there in in yonder years somewhere I'm going to die. Paul lived with with the threat of death every day as he writes this letter. He was under the threat of death. And yet he's able to say to die is gain. The authorities would say, Paul, we're going to take your life. Great. Absent from the body. Present with the Lord. They'd say, well, that kind of attitude, we'll just let you live then. Well, great too. If you let me live, that just gives me more time to preach the gospel and be about God's business. Folks, you can't defeat a person like that. If your conviction in life is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, come what may in your life, whatever valleys you experience in your life, you have the ultimate victory. Man cannot defeat you. The world cannot take your hope away because God, through the power of His Spirit and His Word, has put a hope in you that nothing in the world can snatch away. I think of that famous preacher, that Puritan preacher, Richard Baxter, who lived from 1615 to 1691. He took many unpopular stands in his ministry and he was put in jail. And on top of imprisonment, Baxter suffered many setbacks and illnesses physically. On his deathbed, a friend said, Richard, how are you? And Richard Baxter said, sir, I'm almost well now. I am almost well. That's Paul. To die is gain. Not something any of us want to do today or tomorrow, but guess what? If it happens, to die is gain. It's not loss. This is the same guy who wrote what we've been studying in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Folks, think about this. It is not less of life when we go into the presence of the one who is the resurrection and the life. Life is not diminished. Life is enhanced. It's gain. Some of you that have lost loved ones who were believers understand their position is one of gain. 
It's like Jesus told his disciples in the upper room there in John 14 through 16. He looked at his disciples and he said to them, he said, Men, can you not at least be happy for me because of what I've told you I am about to go and experience? The fact that I'm about to go back to the Father. Can you not be happy for me about that? It's gain. It's gain. It's a new perspective on life and death. Christianity is a resurrection faith. We have present forgiveness and peace and future hope and assurance. We have the promise of God of eternal life. Think of what John says in Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself shall be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's why death is gain. We go, I want you to think about that. We go from a fallen world, a fallen world filled with sin, violence, sickness, death, division, to a place of perfect harmony. No sin, no division, no violence, no sickness, and no death. I think it's putting it mildly to say to die is gain when you look at it that way. Amen? Folks, what an attitude for a Christian. What what a makeover, you could say. A radical makeover. You go from a lost man Living for the things of the world, living for prestige. Just, look, just think about Paul's resume that he touted in, in Philippians chapter 3 that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees as to the law. He said, I was blameless. He was of the right family line, the right, the right lineage. He had everything going in favor for him on his resume and yet he said, All these things that were gained to me were loss for Christ. I count as rubbish now that I may gain Christ. A total makeover in his life. Have you experienced that total makeover? That you go from living for the purposes of the man of the world to the ultimate purpose of life, which is to Exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Has that exchange taken place in your life? Whole new set of convictions. Whole new set of values. Whole new set of passions and desires. Has that happened in your life? Can you say for me to live as Christ and to die is gain? If not, if you can't say that, wouldn't you agree with me that you have some business to do with God? 
You've got some business to do with God. You really do. And I know I'm speaking to some here this morning who, who don't even know Christ yet. The exchange has not even happened. The journey has not even begun. And you have nothing to gain by putting it off and potentially everything to lose. Some of you have heard me tell this story many times. True story is told by John Phillips, a British Bible commentator. In his commentary on Romans, he writes about this little boy standing outside the gates of Buckingham Palace and he was crying and a young, handsome, nicely dressed man came up the sidewalk and, and bent over and said, Son, why are you crying? He said, I'm crying because I want to get into the palace and see the King of England and yet the guards won't let me. And that young man said, Here, son, place your hand in my hand. And the little boy did. And they walked up to the guards who this time, instead of blocking their entrance, snapped to attention. And this young man, this little boy, walked up the entrance to Buckingham Palace. Didn't even knock or ring a doorbell, just turned the door handle, went right in, down the hallway, into a back room, into the presence of the King of England. You see, the little boy didn't realize that he had put his hand in the hand of the king's son, the prince of Wales. And because he had put his hand into the hand of the king's son, he had entry to the king. That's the gospel. You put your hand into the hand of God's son, the Lord Jesus. And you have access to the Father. Amen? Maybe somebody here this morning needs to come forward and say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not converted. Religious? Yes. Born again? No. It's never happened. This, this makeover you're describing in Paul's life, this makeover you're talking about when, when Christ enters a man's heart, he becomes a new creation in Christ. I don't know that, I've, that I ever sense that I've become a new creation in Christ. I need to be saved. Folks, it's more than filling out a commitment card. That won't do it. You need to pray that the Spirit of God would work redemption in your heart. That He would do His work of regeneration. I'd love to pray with you about that. Perhaps others that need a new church home. You're looking for a place where you can grow with other believers and the things of the Lord. You come forward as well. We'd love to be your church home. Perhaps others that, that need to do some soul checking in your life. You know you're saved. But to read Paul's values and his passions in this verse, you'd say, somewhere along the line, I've gotten way off course. I'm not there. And yet I know I need to be. And maybe you just want to kneel at this altar in a public way and do some business with God. And you come forward as well.